0: Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove.
1: Yes, it's that time of the week. Tuesday night, 7:30 Brisbane time. Iron Fist the Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor. I'm here with Joe the tech guy. How are you, Joe? Good evening all. Yeah. Just discovered that Joe's not that a keen not a fan of daylight saving. So, um You come out with some well, uh- Surprising ones at have, times, Joe. Things I don't pick. Have a rant later. Yeah, we can talk about that later. But uh, Joe's not in favour of it, and he's got some good reasons. It wasn't you know just the curtains fading? There were some other reasons, but anyway. Um, all all the cows cows needing milking or something. That's it. Yeah, somebody said it to Itania. me. Somebody said it to me about uh, daylight saving today, and I said it just. Has no effect on me whatsoever because I organize my schedule the way I want to. And so I can just do things in my own time whenever I feel like it. So I'm quite fortunate that way. But I get that there were people who would like to have the extra time. Anyway, we're not going to talk about daylight saving, I don't think. We're going to talk about Andrew Thorburn. Um, oh, and we lasted 24 hours, maybe, as CEO of Essendon. And lots of discussion about. Christians in public places, in the public square, and whether they've been driven out and what are the rights of people, Christians in particular, to hold down nice jobs in the face of um, arguments about why they shouldn't have them. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, Scottish rent freezes, inflation anomalies, a bit about think tanks, China and America if we get to it. I'm not going to do currency this week. I was threatening to do currency, but I am a uh, a patron of this guy called Michael Hudson and he's going to do a talk in a couple of weeks about currency. So I'll wait for him to do that and then I'll give you the lowdown from what I get on that. So hello in the uh, chat room to uh, Tanya, Bronwyn and James. Bronwyn um, says, you don't need to be a fan of Daylight Saving Joe. You live in Queensland. Sorry. It's true. Yeah. He didn't like it when he was in the UK either because he was having, the sun wasn't setting till 11 o'clock at night. It's part of the reason. Is that right?
2: Uh, well, that was in France because they're an hour ahead. But ah. even so, yeah, yeah. I, I just didn't see the point. Mm. Anyway. And um, it's a big, big upset, big mm. disrupt twice a year.
1: Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk. About And Roman will be up for this one, discussing Andrew Thorburn because Broman um, mentioned him to me last week and we briefly mentioned him but it's sort of blown up in the last seven days and it's a really interesting case um, about this guy. So uh, in a nutshell, he was appointed CEO of Essendon and then they discovered that he was a member of a Christian church that had some sort of unsavoury... Yeah.
2: He appointed himself
1: head of Essendon. Yeah, well, we will get to that, yes. Um, yeah, part of a task force to find a CEO, <laughs> And he decided, guess what? I think I'm the best man for the job. We'll get to that.
2: Strange that.
1: Yeah. It all fits, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, it turns out he was part of a church that had some, um, some things in their objectives and goals and their character that meant that people didn't like the look of him. So he ended up resigning. So anyway, let's talk about, and this, you know, it all wraps up, Joe, with, you know, Falau. It's interesting. When you mix Christians with Christianity with footballers, then you get this Mm -hmm. uh, amazing sort of discussion. that doesn't seem to occur uh, to the same level. There's a sort of an, an amazing mixture of, Maybe because people get very passionate about their football teams, they want them to win, and Christians and non-Christians alike are keen on football. It's sort of, it's both of those groups in there. So uh, hence... Well, I'm just trying to think of other sports
2: that have outspoken Christians in them.
1: Mm, Tennis? Tennis. Do with they though, Margaret Court?
2: I suppose. Yeah. Well, I, and that's uh, that's the same. Yes, yes, true. Very much. Yeah, and, and she's she's not leading any tennis
1: things. No, she's long retired. Yeah. Mm. But and
2: I was just thinking about Ah, um, uh, anti-vax
1: Djokovic. Hmm. Yes. Novak Djokovic. That was it. Novak Djokovic. It's true. Yep. Yeah. People take an interest in sport, people who have no interest in ethical dilemmas of Christianity and its role in the public square suddenly take an enormous interest when a footballer or a tennis player is involved in a sport that they're interested in, Um, and then we get all these interesting discussions come from it. So it's a good thing, I think, that uh, these discussions crop up. But it's
2: waking people
1: up Mm. to...
2: The odiousness that it's not just a benign thing
1: yeah, starts a discussion. people can put these things into context because we could rabbit on all we like about atheist math teachers who are not allowed to teach in you know, a private religious mm-hmm. school or could be sacked you know, if they're gay or just atheist or whatever, and nobody's interested, but when we start to involve sport into these questions, people start to develop uh, interest in it so so yeah, so let's talk about it um. I don't find any difficulty in figuring out this stuff in terms of what's right and what's wrong. Um, I think it's pretty simple, that we have a general principle that unfair discrimination is not good for our society. So I don't really think we need to go into the details of that, although we could at a later stage, but societies will obviously operate much better if, everybody has a chance of participating as widely as possible in every activity. And if a society can draw on the talents of as many members as possible in as many fields as possible, then um, as a whole, the society will progress and and move forward Uh, more so than if talented people are, are kept out of jobs requiring that talent for reasons that are unrelated
2: and just in terms well, in of an argument against Saudi Arabia
1: mm.
2: and an argument for their modernization was yeah we've lost 50% of our workforce mm. by, by saying that women can't work or can only work in limited roles mm. effectively um,
1: they are st- yeah, stifling their economy mm. and issues of social harmony if we want our society mm. to get along so You know, I guess it depends on your primary objective, but if it is for a successful, harmonious society, then you would have to say that we really want people to participate as fully as possible. Therefore, unfair discrimination uh, is something that we shouldn't be doing. And really, we should err on the side of allowing full participation. So if there's a bit of a grey line and we're not sure where it falls, a particular circumstance, I think we should Err on the side of encouraging full participation and not allowing discrimination because it is such an important principle. Anyway, um, so, but when it comes to employment, we should only discriminate against characteristics that reasonably prevent the person from doing the job. So, what you've got to do is look at the job and say, what really is required in this job? And has the person for whatever reason, inherent characteristics or uh, due to things they've said or done, made themselves ineligible or less able to do this job in a a true sense.
2: So so you're saying that somebody whose religion holds them to uh, believe that puppies are are evil things that need to be tortured Mm. shouldn't be the head of Guide Dogs Australia?
1: Correct. Yes. It seems fairly obvious. So, So, you know, that's the basic principle is look at the job. Now, what happens in these cases and thinking particularly of Falau, Israel Falau, is people said, oh, he's a footballer. All he's got to do is catch and pass the ball and run over the try line. But that wasn't his job description in full. There was a an element of sponsorship money in particular and a need to be... um, A public role model. Correct, and adhering to social norms. So it was more than just a footballer. And the same with a CEO of Essendon is more than just somebody who is sitting in board meetings and adding up the figures, checking the budget's correct, blah, blah, blah. There are other parts of that role that need to be taken into account. So
2: I'm thinking of Israel Falal. Mm. you know, if he'd been caught, I don't know, um, taking cocaine, mm. that would be deemed not appropriate as mm. a role model mm. and he would have been given the arse for it, yeah, kicked out. mm uh, and But, you know, if he says, oh, well, it's part of my religion, suddenly he's supposed to get a, a pass. Mm. Just, you know, it, it's not two society, societal norms and he's being held up as a role model. Mm.
1: And it was a job that required that. So if he was playing park <laughs> rugby where mm-hmm. he was just playing for expenses or 100 bucks a game or whatever they get or for nothing, it would have been fine. He could have said all the outrageous things he said And he could have continued in that role because it wasn't, you know, if you are just playing park rugby, you don't have that role model component. So you have to look at the job. Anyway, so discrimination. Sometimes discrimination is fair based on the job that the person has to perform. So we could discriminate against people with poor eyesight and say, guess what? You can't be a pilot of commercial aeroplane. We really need people with top notch eyesight. Yeah. Um, we could, uh, I actually work in art supply business, and uh, I remember uh, the manufacturer, um, one of the guys from there was talking to me. It's uh, the manufacturing uh, plant is in uh, the Netherlands, and they said the people working in the factory who are mixing all of the colors and the paint um, can't be colorblind. Correct. <laughs> because Things could get mislabeled. You need to be able to look at things and say, "Oh, that colour's not right," you know. So, yeah, guess what? color Colourblind people can't work in that particular factory. Sorry, but it's a necessary requirement of the job. Um, and you could say other things like, you know, we don't want to discriminate against uh, paraplegics, for example. But you know, we uh, employing people to act as bus drivers on our on our council buses where we can't install facilities for them. And and also a bus driver might be required to get out of their seat and do other things at different times. So, you know, we'd have to say, unfortunately, as a paraplegic, uh, even though you might be able to drive your car, which has been modified, it's just not going to work for you to be um driver of our buses. So, so there are times when you look at the role that's required and you can say uh, we're discriminating against you based on a characteristic that you have. You know, just The ones I've mentioned now are all sort of physical characteristics, just to keep it simple. But because of the nature of the job, you can't really perform it properly, therefore the discrimination is fair, not unfair, and we can proceed on the basis of discriminating against those people. That's the sort of first part. Sometimes discrimination is fair. Take, for example, um, again, it depends on the nature of the job, so... If you were looking to employ somebody, and let's take a really easy case, um, they're going to work from home remotely as an accountant. Well, you couldn't say, we don't accept paraplegics. Because guess what? It makes no difference to that job, whether you are or not. So look at the job. What is the characteristic and is it relevant? Can you do the job? Correct. Can you do the job? So, um, so this is not limited to physical characteristics. So some jobs have character requirements and, um, for example, at the simplest level, a convicted child molester shouldn't really be a primary school teacher, for example. I think we can say that uh, you've done something there that rules you out from being a primary school teacher. Based on character. On the Catholic Church instead. Yeah, that's right. Good job for you in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Based on character, you've ruled yourself out. Now, you can still be a remote worker doing an accounting work from your home. Mm-hmm. I can't rule you out on that. And, in fact, there was a case. I remember we talked about a year or two ago where Suncorp, I think, went to fire somebody who they discovered was, I think, a child uh, convicted pedophile, but they were working from mm-hmm. home, no contact with the public, and the person didn't lie on their application form. They found out later. And so it was uh, it was unfair to discriminate against that person for that particular job. So, so it doesn't have to be physical things. It can be character requirements of a job. Um, and also,
2: you know, um, if a person has served their sentence,
1: hmm. we should be reintegrating
2: them into society.
1: Yes, we should. But we can also say, you know what, okay, you've done your time, but as a convicted Mm. child molester, it's just not going to work for you as a primary school teacher. Whereas if they were a
2: convicted thief, Mm. you possibly wouldn't want them
1: working in a bank,
2: even Mm. remotely.
1: Yes, and it depends on the nature of what they stole. And if they were a white-collar criminal who'd embezzled money, Mm. less likely to be employable in a bank than somebody who had... As shoplifted. A, uh, yes, exactly. As an 18-year-old and stole a packet of cigarettes. It just depends. You've got to look at the circumstances. And we're going to get onto that because looking at the circumstances means um, blanket rules are not a good idea. Work. Uh, no, not a good idea. All right. This CEO. Um so uh Andrew Thorburn. CEO of Essendon requires the CEO to be able to well, this isn't my words, to liaise and communicate and have good relationships with a number of different stakeholder groups. And I read from an article that said Essendon, uh, according to a statement by its own chairman, Dave Barham, is, quote, committed to providing an inclusive, diverse and a safe club where everyone is welcome and respected. That makes sense. Nothing unusual in that, particularly in this day and age. Maybe not so much. 40 years ago, but certainly today. Now, City on the Hill, which is the church that this guy is a not only member of, but a leader in, um, holds and promotes some beliefs that are these days not mainstream. They include that abortion is murder and homosexuality is a sin. And the church's website includes an article from 2013 titled Surviving Same-Sex Attraction as a Christian. So this chairman of Essendon said that the Essendon board wasn't aware of these conflicting value sets that Thorburn had, the conflict being as CEO of Essendon being inclusive and...
2: I find that hard to believe, but
1: yeah. ...as being a leader in the church of being not inclusive to certain groups um, when they appointed him. And when the media began pointing it out, uh, it told him he couldn't perform both roles and he chose to resign from the role as CEO. So, importantly, they didn't have to sack him. He resigned. So, mm. so tricky part with this one, Joe, is with Folau, Falau came out and made his statements and stood by them. All the gay fan. people are going to hell. Like, in this case we've got a church group who have these values and Thorburn hasn't really come out and... He is a leader of the church. Correct. So he didn't actually repeat them and spruit them and make a big song and dance about them, but but he is a leader of the church and I thought if I got here in terms of exactly what he is, so he wasn't just a normal member of the congregation. Uh, so as uh, a leader of City on the Hill, he can be, I think, rightly presumed to subscribe to its ethical positions. So might be a bit different, Joe, if he was just a member of the congregation. What do you reckon? Mm-hmm. If it turned out he was just a member who turned up on Sundays, rocked up, you don't yeah, have I to. I mean... Just because you're a member of a political party doesn't mean
2: you subscribe to all of their positions. Correct. Yep. The same with a religious group. But if you're a leader, mm. then it's fair to assume that, no matter what you privately believe, that mm. publicly, and you need to be acting in the characteristics. Yeah. You know, when 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 the minister is quizzed about what they think about a particular. Uh, matter, they have to toe the party line whether they believe it or not. Yep. And I think it's the same with, yeah, management of a church.
1: Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, it's a really vital role of a CEO of a football club these days to be keeping all of the Inclusive. potential stakeholders happy. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's, a, oh, it's a, you know, the amount of diplomacy and keeping different groups happy and involved That's just the nature of that job. So it's it's a high component of the job. And being uh, a leader of that church really, I think, makes him incapable of performing that in that people couldn't have trust. If he turns up at um, the gay pride round or whatever it is on behalf of Essendon saying, isn't this wonderful, yet people know he has a different position when he's in his church, Uh, it's just a hypocritical stance that people would know about and therefore make his position untenable, therefore making him unable to perform the role that the football club requires. So um, uh, now, if, for example, he wanted to be just the cleaner, hosing out the sheds after the game, and be the uh, head of the church group, not a problem. Nobody cares what the uh, what the person um, the cleaner's doing. They don't have. They're not in a role that requires uh, a public Even relations. Even the CFO, perhaps, yeah. So you've got to look at the job. What does it involve? And you want these special jobs? They come with special requirements, and he, uh, it's it's that's just what happens when you take on a job like that. Uh, If you want to work for Essendon and still be part of the church, just pick a job that's a bit lower in the pecking order and where the job doesn't require this PR element and you'll be fine. You won't be cancelled. Right. Um, How does this apply to religious schools? So we've been talking over the years about the situation of gay people and atheists, for example, who are math teachers who mm-hmm. might want to work in a private religious school and um, what? how does all this sort of tie in with, with those thoughts? Because when we're talking about that sort of stuff, we've been saying as much as possible gay atheist math teachers, for example, should be able to teach in those schools and it really comes down to what's the nature of the role? And it seems pretty apparent to me from my observations of math teachers over the years, their job's to teach math and physics and chemistry quite often. They're doing the whole And give the class in prayers. And No. <laughs> so what is their job? Uh, if, for example, uh, a gay atheist... Uh, wanted the job as the religious instruction teacher in the religious school, then I think the school can quite legitimately say, you know what, uh, we're going to discriminate against you because as a gay atheist um, you can't perform the role of a religious instruction teacher in our particular style of religion at our crazy nutbag school here. So, And, you know, that I think is fair enough. Um, and maybe even the principal level. So, uh, again, if you're operating a school as a, as a very Christian school and you had somebody who was an outspoken atheist, say me, for example, applied for a job, they'd be able to say, you know what, your statements as part of uh, a leader of the Noosa Temple of Satan and the other stuff you do on your podcast, you've made yourself... Um, uh, incapable kind of with the values yes incapable of performing the role of a school principal in this religious school because of character trevor and i'd have to say fair enough so it does cut both ways and it's a bit but we look at say the math teacher as really being the cleaner or the gardener it it doesn't matter what he thinks he just has a job to do and uh, that's why he shouldn't. he's not engaging about religion. Yes.
2: Because as has happened in the states mm. um,
1: uh,
2: and over here, mm. in secular schools, in state schools, some teachers have taken it upon themselves to proselytize. Mm.
1: And if you're doing, yes, proselytize in a non religious school. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. So, so, yeah, what's the job? What are you required to do? Does your character by virtue of the, the groups you lead or the things you've said make you incapable of performing that role. So this all shows why, um, why we shouldn't have blanket... Uh, ..we shouldn't allow blanket discrimination based on religious belief. So... Uh, and this is the problem with making blanket rules where these religious discrimination exemptions that are allowed... Just saying, oh, you um, should be allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion. It that gives no uh, examination of the nature of the job and the role and what's being done. So blanket rules regarding discrimination that don't take into the circum into account the circumstances are um, just by the examples we've run through show. There's a problem there. You need to be able to look at these circumstances and the role of the job. Um, So, um, right. Now, the other interesting part of this, Joe, is the argument from the religious groups to counter everything that I've said so far has been they like to say that, uh, okay, the role of the math teacher, maybe they don't lead prayers. There should be a right of religious people to gather together as a community and operate a community with an ethos, a religious ethos, um, and therefore to exclude other people, not so much because of the roles that they are performing and their ability to perform that role, but more of... We're just a group of Christians who want to gather as Christians to the exclusion of others.
2: And I don't see a problem um, for for meeting up for social purposes, for religious purposes. Yes. But when you start operating services and taking government funding for
1: that, exactly.
2: If that's when I start having a problem.
1: Yep. And if you've got a church running at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning and people rock up. Who don't want to worship and are disruptive mm. to that, by all means, you should be able to kick them out. But when yep. you're running a business in an institution uh, that's operating 24 uh, 7, no. And for those people, I think this this case is brilliant, this Thorburn case, because um, i just read directly from my notes here. Previously, religious institutions have invoked the religious ethos of the group and the desirability of the freedom for religious groups to want to congregate to the exclusion of non-believers. Next time someone argues that, see how they feel about the Thorburn case. Can those who want to be welcoming of LGBTIQ people exclude those who don't? It's a really good example to say to those people, you want your own exclusive community with a nature about it and exclude people because of it? Well, Essendon was creating a community of people inclusive of LGBTIQ and and desired not to have people in there who were not of that thinking. How did you feel um, that, about that? And that goes
2: against the committed to providing an inclusive, diverse, and safe club mm. where everyone is welcome and respected. Mm. So it should be possibly where non-bigoted people are welcome and respected.
1: Mm. I, I still think this is a great example to say to people who, who say, we should be able to have a community of, with an ethos and exclude others just because of that and say <laughs> to them, well, Essendon wanted a community with an ethos. Were you happy when they excluded Thorburn? And see what they say. And I think you'll find these and people Essendon are saying... And
2: Essendon aren't getting government funding, are
1: yeah, they? no. Oh, or sporting groups invariably do in many, in sort of different ways. But anyway, it's a great example to throw into that mix as an answer to that um, answer to that sort of um, argument that uh, Christian people often throw up.
2: Well, they probably do pay tax.
1: Hmm. I don't know. Don't sporting know. clubs surely pay tax. I don't know, Jay. Uh, don't know. Right. What's happening in the chat room? Um, uh, let's see.
2: Um, some discussion about Thorburn's
1: yeah. um, previous role. Yeah, okay. We'll get onto some of all that before we go any much further. Okay. Twitter's great. Lots of things in there. A few different quotes along these lines with different thoughts in there. Dave Smith on Twitter. The religious. We must be allowed to discriminate with regard to whom we employ. Also, the religious, nobody is allowed to do the same to us. Very true. So hypocritical, these people. Um, Dominic says, the Bible has a lot to say about not charging interest. So it's quite strange for Thorburn to be working as a bank CEO. Getting to pick and choose from the Bible must be nice. And it's true. The Bible is so interest. interesting.
2: Well, that's why the Jews were hated. yes. Because uh, they
1: used to uh, offer loans, didn't they? Yes. Uh, the Chaser said Church lobbying to keep the right to not hire gay people demands an end to employment discrimination, pointing out the hypocrisy again. Um, uh, let me just see. Paul Sivret says Well said, in some respects, it would be akin to appointing the chair of Santos to head the Climate Council. It's true. Um, And the shovel said, oh, yeah, because there was that uh, archbishop, I think an archbishop in Sydney, who cancelled his Essendon membership. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And the shovel wrote, with priests cancelling their memberships, Essendon fans can finally feel comfortable taking their kids to the footy. Mm. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, Let me see. It's only funny because it's true. Yeah. Um, All right. Oh, Julia is one of our um, regular people in the chat room. Don't know if Julia is there tonight. She's been active on Twitter on these sorts of things. Um, She says, so you support religious organisations wanting to hire people who align with their values but not non-religious organisations wanting to do the same. Is that right? Uh, Which is this... um, same argument I was putting at the end there. And, um, oh, there was an article by a guy called Anthony Saget who was writing in the Sydney Morning Herald, basically bemoaning the fact that this Christian had been cancelled. And um, I think he shot himself in the foot with his first two lines of his article, Joe, which was, um... I found myself yelling at Kochi on Thursday morning, uh, so this was um David Koch on Sunrise. So,
2: I was going to say he's Koshi, isn't he?
1: Koshi yeah. Koshi Koshi isn't uh, yes. so Koshi was interviewing the leader of that same church and getting stuck right. into him and um, so this article is in reference to that, and he says I found myself yelling at Koshi on Thursday morning. Rest assured. I love breakfast television as much as the next person.
2: So not at all.
1: <laughs> He's lost me there, right? Exactly, me too. I can't read the rest. Seriously? If you love breakfast television, I can't be bothered reading the rest of your article. It's. I did read it, but I'm not going to... Is there anybody there in the chat room who watches or likes breakfast television? Surely... Surely not, please. Yeah. Well, rest assured, I love breakfast television as much as the next person. It just disqualifies you from commentating on anything, I would have thought. Just on Thorburn, he's previously CEO of the National Australia Bank, and they had a terrible reputation, particularly for charging fees from dead people, for services that had not been performed and got a bad grilling at the um, inquiry that came about. So and he was the CEO at the time.
2: Well, it sounds like um,
1: judges. Yeah. Yes.
2: Charging people for services that aren't performed. <laughs> yes.
1: Charging dead people too, I guess. I mean, to bury yeah. them. Yeah.
2: Indeed. Or well, at least they bury them, but, you know, the whole salvation thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. They do perform. I, that. I'd
2: like to see proof of these services, thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: My mother's buried in the uh, in the Catholic section at the cemetery down the coast. That's the other thing, dear listener, like they divide cemeteries up: Catholics here, Protestants there. Even in death, they'll divide you.
2: Past variants?
1: I didn't see them. Must have been in the lower parts, not at, not at the top of the hill. Right? Didn't, didn't have the good views. Hmm. Ah. Oh, yes. So while CEO of the National Australia Bank, he joined City on the Hill Evangelical Church and he was appointed chairman of the board of City on a Hill and a City on a Hill warden. So seemingly senior positions. Um, In 2016, he, as Labor was pushing for a royal commission into the finance sector, he said, it was a serious distraction, and he argued it was unnecessary and potentially damaging to bank confidence. Two years later, he he told the Banking Royal Commission, at the time, I just don't think we saw it with the clarity we do now. And um, in 2022... As you mentioned earlier, Joe, he was appointed to the task force to find a new coach and CEO for the Essendon Football Club, and he found a new CEO by appointing himself to the role. There um, we go. Uh, last bit. There was a editor. There was an editorial in the West Australian, and the headline was. Um, Bomber's furor is about bigotry, not religion. It was very much an editorial, more Mm or less saying the sorts of things that we've been saying here, obviously not in much detail, but I thought that was an interesting move. I don't know how many newspapers have come out quite so clearly saying um, that it was a good move by Essendon and, of course, it was the right thing to do. So... I just found that was interesting from an editorial to sort of take on religion that way. It's not Murdoch or Fairfax, though, is it? No, it's Kerry Stokes, I, I think. That's Australian, okay. I think. So, hmm. Right. Uh, oh, and actually, now, I need to play this clip um, because this is a good one that ties in a number of things that we've talked about in recent times. Uh, let me just find Andrew Bolt. Um because Dan Andrews came out and said something like, "Good on you, Essendon. We don't need characters like Thornburn in charge of football clubs." You know, along those lines, that was sort of flavour of it. And um, and this was the response by Andrew Bolt. I'll play this.
0: That is character assassination, and is excusing an injustice to an individual in this case, Thornton, by saying, "Well, there's a." bigger issues to worry about, and that is simply unjust. That is straight out of the Marxist and Leninist playbook. That says, well, you can't make a revolution without breaking eggs. The individual has got to be sacrificed to the revolution.
1: Marxist, Joe?
2: There it is. I don't know he said that he is Marxist. He said that's out of the Marxist playbook.
1: Yeah, well, the whole thing. you listen. listening. We did an episode on cultural Marxism. And I made the point at the time that Christians love uh, referring to sort of secularist atheists as part of a cultural Marxist movement, bringing down civilization. So that was just a nice little wrapping up of it. In a but bundle. also right-wingers. Yes. Love referring to
2: left-wingers as Marxists. Yes.
1: It's Godwin's Law Part 2, isn't it? Yes, it is. You're right. So – um so, yeah, look at that episode if you haven't already about cultural Marxism and what it actually means. And, um,
2: and yeah. Although you know Hitler was a Marxist, don't you?
1: <laughs> so that's Godwin's Law 1 and 2 together. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. In the chat rooms, Anthony, no way, Broman, crap, and John, uh, no, and I think we've moved on from Insiders as well, and James, I don't know anybody who does. I think this is in response to, does anybody watch Breakfast TV? So, Correct. Yeah, and Jungle Juice and as jungle well. And Jungle Juice, Jungle, yeah. yeah. I think it's almost unanimous in the chat room that, um, uh, that Breakfast TV. It's good to see we've got a discerning audience, Joe. You are nonetheless prepared to watch a podcast. Tuesday night, yeah. Mm. Um, okay. That's enough about Andrew Thorburn. Only took forty minutes. That's pretty good. Joe, uh, we've talked about uh, rising cost of housing, and we've also now got rising uh, rents in Australia, and becoming quite a problem. And I came across this article about. Scotland has passed laws for a rent freeze. So, you know, this is Scotland. This isn't uh, Venezuela or Cuba or the authoritarian Chinese. (laughs) Scotland. Anything about Scottish that would make them particularly socialist or Marxist? Um, Yeah. Are they? Large working class population. Right. Um, Culturally quite different in that respect to the other members of the UK? Uh,
2: well, I mean, the SNP is very – I thought SNP was very much left-leaning. Right. Because the Conservatives want to be part of the UK.
1: But would you think of the Scottish as being particularly – when we're talking rent-freeze, which is a bit of a anti-capitalist, socialist move that we're going to talk about – are they different to the Welsh, for example? When you think of oh, the Scots. If anyone was going to do it, it would be the Scots. Would would that? No, would that I would thought? say the Scots and the
2: Welsh and the Irish will feel to be under the thumb of the the landlords down south.
1: Okay. The English. Yep. So, um, so they passed a bill, um, which is going to freeze rents until the end of March twenty twenty three. It's been passed by the Scottish Parliament, called the Cost of Living Tenant Protection. Scotland bill, gives ministers temporary powers to cap rents for private and social tenants. Evictions will only be allowed under certain circumstances. Approved amendments included changes to the details needed from landlords to provide evidence of financial hardship, including letters from money advisors or accountants. So if they're going to try and put up the rent, they've got to prove change of circumstances and provide evidence. And um legislation was passed, 89 votes to 27, so pretty solid pass. Um, and it will be the first bill passed by Holyrood to be given royal assent by King Charles III. Do you know so
2: Holyrood is, is um, the Scottish
1: Parliament. Ah, okay. Do you know the background of that as to why it's called Holyrood? Seems a strange name. It's just the name of the Scottish um, Parliament.
2: Isn't it the street it's on? Okay. Um, I am mean, Hollywood Palace is, is um, the Queen's residence in Scotland. Ah, uh, okay. In Edinburgh. Okay.
1: All right. So um, King Charles uh, will be assenting to that one. Now, from the explanatory memorandum, so you've got prescribed property costs, which are things like the interest a landlord would pay and uh, certain types of insurance, not general building and... Contents. And under this section 33B, um, any rent increase uh, allowed by the rent officer must be no more than 50% of the increase in the landlord's costs in the previous six months. So the landlord can only get half of the increase in these costs. And it's subject to an overall limit. No more than three percent of the level of the existing rent, so a significant restriction in what landlords can charge, and they have to prove it. And yeah, I
2: I know there are big, big concerns about the energy crisis in the UK, the cost Mm. of energy, Mm. and they're very worried that moving into winter that there will be deaths because people can't pay for their energy bills, Mm. and I think this is trying to stop additional costs, i.e. rent being forced onto tenants and then being evicted.
1: Mm. Yeah. So so that's done. It's happened and interesting. So if things get tough, who knows what other countries might follow in that regard. There's a precedent there. Um, Speaking of inflation are we seeing different inflation figures for Australia and around the world? And a couple of things with inflation, Joe, is a lot of it is just survey-based. Like they just ring up a bunch of people in industry and ask them how they're feeling how or, what, or yeah, what they've been doing. Are they increasing inventory or decreasing? So a lot of it is sort of survey-based that gets extrapolated. The other thing is that different countries include different things in their uh, consumer price index. So uh, let's think about some of the things that have really increased in price over the last um, – actually, I can bring this up as um, – I should bring up this PowerPoint presentation. Let me just grab grab that and put it up in a second. Um, Joe, second-hand cars are really skyrocketed. In the last couple have, years yeah. yeah and so in america um in terms of um how that affects the cpi so they've got a used car and trucks index and that's up 50 in the last couple of years and it has a 5% weighting in the CPI calculation for America's inflation rate. And so just the increase in the price of used cars led to a 2.5% increase in the consumer price index in America since 2020. If if it's a cost of living,
2: why not? Hmm.
1: Well, the interesting thing is, guess how much Australia allows for used car price increases in our CPI inflation figure? Well, having read the article, I know the answer is zero. <laughs> exactly. It was a rhetorical question. So we don't allow anything for used car prices in our CPI figure, yet it's responsible for 2.5% of America's in the last couple of years.
2: Well, I wonder how much, what proportion of, car sales is used cars and what proportion is new and whether
1: that's different here compared to the United States. Yeah, I don't know. I just picked up a new car, Joe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm, Toy- oh. Toyota CHR. Did you um, order it without all the options? <laughs> no, it, it took a year to get here. Right. We ordered it a year ago.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, That that's why used cars have gone up in value.
1: Yeah, that's right. So.
2: Because you can't get the new ones in because they can't get the chips. Yeah. yeah. The, the cars themselves that they can build. It's all the electronics that run the cars
1: mm. yeah. they can't get the parts for. Yeah. I rate cars, Joe, based on how easy is it for my phone to Bluetooth connect and play podcasts as I drive around. That's, that's how I judge it. And this one's performing quite well in that regard, so I'm quite happy. Right. Yeah. So – um But I'm going to put up on the screen here, this is um, the weightings of different categories of things for the CPI, Australia versus the United States. Can you make that bigger, Joe, while I'm looking at this? Um, Um, Yeah, I can. Yeah, without us in it. um, I'm just trying
2: to remember how.
1: So what you're going to find here is not only the thing I mentioned in relation to cars, um, but... In the American um, CPI, there's a massive component, Um, 24% of it um, is a thing called owner's equivalent rent. And basically what they do in America is look at what rent would a homeowner pay if they weren't a homeowner and were renting and what is the increase um, in addition to rents paid, let me get, let me read this so I give it to you accurately. So uh, there's a massive category called owner's equivalent rent that gets a 24% weight in the United States CPI for urban consumers, but zero in Australia. In Australia, we only include the cost of new housing construction to represent the price of housing for owner occupiers. This gets an 8.7% weight. In the United States, they capture the price of owning your own home by assuming that you pay yourself the market rent. Hence, they scale up the market rents paid by renters and apply them to every owner-occupied household. So, when rental prices rise, as they have been recently in both countries, the price change is weighted at 31.5% in the United States but is weighted at only 6.2% in Australia's CPI. So, by the way, this is all from an article by Cameron Murray in, um, I think, uh, in his blog, Cameron Murray. Uh, So, yeah, something like um, renting and housing, completely different calculations in the inflation rates, and used cars, completely different. So when you look at the inflation rates for different countries looking at a totally different basket of goods. Interesting. Joe, there are lies, damn lies and statistics.
2: I was going to say, what about the um, Big Mac index of Mm. costs? Yes. That, That used to get published regularly. I don't know what happened to that.
1: Yeah, I don't know. There was also a theory that countries that had a McDonald's weren't engaged in wars or something like that, but that didn't last that long.
2: Going to say mm. Russia.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, that's CPI inflation it means different things in different places. Um, oh, look, maybe I will. Uh, I'll leave the. That, there was a very
2: personal question asked. What was that? Uh, is your car a hybrid? Yes,
1: it is. Yeah. Yeah. there you go. So I've driven a fair bit. And the fuel gauge has not moved. So happy with that too. Yeah, you? I
2: I had a hybrid rental, uh, went up to Harvey Bay for work mm. and was very impressed. I mean, it was a Toyota Corolla. I don't know, it was some yeah. bland car. Mm. But, yeah, very, very impressed with the hybrid.
1: Mm. I can remember, I, see, I rent cars in Sydney. I go around and visit 13 stores all over Sydney, north, south, east, west, and up to Newcastle and back, do the same sort of uh, trip several times a year. Mm -hmm. And in an ordinary car, I use about a tank and a quarter of petrol. And I did once have a hybrid and I used only about two-thirds. Yeah. It's a significant difference. Mm. So, yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. We talked the other day about Liz Truss, and um, I just want to grab um, this one about haven't bagged neoliberalism enough, and there George Monbiot did a very good um, sort of ten minute video on the Conservative Party in the UK and how they've just been captured by neoliberalism and what it's causing in that country. But uh, I've just extracted a little bit from that. So I'll just play this excerpt here.
0: Truss and Kwarteng are the most extreme advocates of neoliberalism that we've ever had in government. They've been schooled by the dark money neoliberal think tanks, organizations such as the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Adam Smith Institute, the Taxpayers Alliance, some of which go back to the very foundations of neoliberalism and were the organizations that were funded in the first instance by these immensely rich people and turned this from being a fringe cult to a mainstream political organization out of these extremist so-called think tanks who refuse to reveal who's funding them. They're no longer lobbying government, they are the government. Now the thing about these so-called think tanks is they claim to be independent think tanks, just thinking about stuff, as if they're some kind of academic saying, hmm, yes, what's the best policy for this country? Let us objectively determine that. In reality, they are lobby groups, acting on behalf of the oligarchs and the corporations who give them their money. And every so often there's a leak and we discover who's been paying them. Oh, it's the tobacco companies. Who would have guessed? It's the oil companies. Who would have guessed? It's some really, really nasty US billionaires. Who would have guessed? Could there perhaps be a connection between the people who fund them and the positions that they take? That the very rich should stop paying tax, that industry should stop being regulated, that trade unions should effectively be shut down, that protest movements should be shut down. They are just lobbying groups on behalf of these organisations whose identity they won't reveal. But here's the astonishing thing. The BBC, in common with almost all the rest of the media, invites these people onto its current affairs programmes every single day. They populate Question Time, the Today programme, Newsnight, the whole lot, they're on there almost 24-7 without ever being challenged as to who's funding them and who they represent.
1: Yeah, that last bit is the bit I really wanted to concentrate on, is Mm -hmm. it is exactly the same here in Australia with the ABC, inviting these think tank people to come on and talk about stuff. And in particular, I see it all the time with submarines and Aspie being asked to comment on the submarines. and. Even someone like uh, Laura Tingle, who is, you know, most people seem to like what she's doing on 7.30 and all the rest, and I'm sure her heart's in the right place. But even she was just trotting out somebody from Aspie as to the submarine decision without backgrounding people and saying, okay, i got this dude from Aspie. Um, Bear in mind when he's talking or she's talking, can't remember which, Aspie is funded by these people, blah blah blah. It's hardly going to give a. Balance but I've never heard anybody there. be caveated. No, exactly. This is um, it's frustrating. Like the ABC has been really disappointing in this regard, and um, yeah. Not only do they seemingly have the opposition members on all the time talking about stuff, when we never used to see the Labor opposition members getting a mm-hmm. run. But, um, yeah, they trot out people from these think tanks and um, as experts without um, giving people information as to the potential biases that these people have infuriates me. And
2: Maybe should they invite the Minerals Council of Australia in for uh, a discussion on the, the pros and cons of mining?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway... Um, I thought that was good. If you just Google George Monbiot on neoliberalism, there's a 10-minute video out there which goes into other things. And it's really, really, very very good. It sets the scene of how the UK got into circumstances that it's in at the moment and we're following uh, something very similar with um, Institute for Public Affairs and groups like that. Although it seems like the Institute for Public Affairs might be losing its influence, but... Um
2: I have seen a couple of things from Australia Institute, which I was surprised about. Hmm. Yes. I can't remember where they were quoted, but it was unusual.
1: Yeah. Swartz Media um, has a podcast called 7am, and there was a segment on that where the person, journalist was more or less saying some of these right-wing think tanks have run out of steam um, because they've got no new ideas and they don't actually do research. They just give opinion. and sort of indicating that some of the left-wing ones or leftish ones like Australia Institute are getting more traction because they actually do um, yeah, research. Yeah, I, I noticed costed,
2: costed mm. um, uh, proposals. Yes. Like if we do this, it'll cost this much and you'll get this in return.
1: Yeah. I still think, though, that the ABC... Still gives a big run to those groups, um, way more than I see them give the Australia Institute or others like that. So um, anyway, uh, let's see. What else have I got here? Um, Patrons. Are you a patron of the podcast? Be nice if you are. Um, I don't run through the list of patrons very often, but – Helps the show. If you want to sign up, go to the website ironfistvelvetclub.com.au and you can do a per episode donation. And if you don't like the idea of that, there's a PayPal account and you can do a one off donation if you'd rather do that than get stuck into a subscription model. But um, if you're into the show and you like what we're doing, uh, there are expenses and it would be encouraging to get more um, patrons. If you can't do that, just tell your friends. Alrighty. China, Joe. Uh, let me see. I can't help myself. I
0: like Chinese. Okay.
1: Yep, yeah, I found my soundboard and I've been running it a bit. So let me just find um, what I've got about China. And I'll get this on this PowerPoint. Yes. Um, so Pew Research has done some work on how the world has changed its view of China in the past 20 years. So I'm going to be putting up on the screen a series of charts, which are essentially from 2002 to 2022, two years. And there's a coloured olive line, which is the percentage of people who think unfavourably about China and there's a light grey line, which is percentage of people who think favourably of China. And basically, as you look through these graphs, twenty years ago, invariably in these various countries, the first ones there are South Korea, Japan, and Australia. Twenty years ago, there were more people thinking favourably of China than unfavourably, and that has changed dramatically. So, Australia, for example, let me just. Um, you know, this is a different one. I can see easier. So Australia, 20 years ago, 40% of people thought unfavourably of China. It's now 86% and 52% thought favourably and it's now 14 And that's pretty much replicated in South Korea, Japan. Uh, put another one up. Uh, next match to
2: South King. Korea, I'm surprised because... North Korea was supplied during the Korean War by China, wasn't it? Um,
1: as to why they were thought favourably of them, mm. 20, yeah. Well, they were doing business with them 20 years ago. So um, Sweden, United States, Netherlands, Canada, Germany, UK. Um, and next one is France. Actually, Italy. Italy. The Italians were always pretty much unfavourable in res- in regards to China. They haven't changed that much. Um, and Poland hasn't changed that much and neither is Hungary. So. Which is interesting
2: because um, Italy was the first European country to get slammed by COVID mm. because apparently they've got quite a large Chinese contingent mm. or Wuhanese okay. contingent.
1: yeah. So um, so big changes in opinion about China, and uh, there's an article here. Actually, let's just go back to the Australian one. Let me just uh, go back to Australia and just look carefully at that graph. Let me just see that one. Okay, that's the Australia one. And... It does you know, say the country, not the people. Uh so the one what do you mean, Joe?
2: John's question was, does it discern between the people and the country?
1: Uh well it's a survey of people in the country as to their the population's opinion of China.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, but China as the country or the oh, Chinese. I see.
1: Yeah, view of China. Hmm. Yeah. I think it would be of China, the imperial force, the government, the the CCP. Yeah, effectively. The CCP, Yeah. So If you look at Australia, really the crossover point was only just a few years ago Um, and you'll see that there was even an uptick only what looks like about six years ago, seven years ago, where probably it would have been about only, uh, it wasn't that long ago where basically it would have been 60-40. Sixty percent positive.
2: Would it be Kevin 07?
1: No, it would have been shortly after um, Morrison. Remember, we've signed a, a uh, we were signing a free trade agreement with China. The president mm-hmm. Xi Jinping was addressed the joint houses of parliament. Um, at the time, the conservative government wanted to do an extradition treaty with China and Labor said, hang on a minute, not sure that's a good idea, and the Conservatives criticised Labor and said, come on, get on with it, we've, we've, China's our friends and you're going to ruin our relationship with China. It was only six or seven years ago that we were 60-40 favourable now we're 86-14, unfavourable. And we sit around these days going, what a numbskull Morrison was, what a terrible prime minister he was, everything he cocked up. You know, he touched, everything he touched he cocked up. And he was one of the driving forces behind the change in sentiment because he blamed the Chinese the virus, and he said we should have weapons inspector-like powers to go into China, and China said, that's not very nice. We're not going to buy your shit anymore, and that's how we ended up how, where we are.
2: How much was that was it the last two years, though? What's that? On that graph. Yes. What about it? Well, so the negative sentiment was 2020 was yes. COVID. Yes. And the weapons inspector and the the fallout from that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and I think that graph started going anti-China long before 2020.
1: Yeah.
2: I think that might have been a nail in the coffin. Might but...
1: have been the nail in the coffin.
2: The graph is reckon... definitely going up from 2015.
1: Yeah, well, I reckon that would have been shortly after. We, we were doing military exercise. We were proposing military exercises with China, with Gillard. So when was?
2: 2012.
1: Uh, yeah. Maybe I could get more detail. I'll do that for homework to try and mm. look at the years in particular and, and, uh, and get closer to what was happening at those different times. But essentially.
2: Oh, it would be nice to see the raw numbers behind those graphs.
1: Yeah. Let's do that. Let's try and find that for next year, uh, for next episode. But I'm working on a theory, Joe, that Morrison's behind it all. And, of course, the um, newspapers, the Murdoch Press in particular, just jumped on board because wars are good for the Murdoch Press. So um, change in sentiment, massive, and it's not just Australia but all over the world and um, personally – I don't think they've done that much to deserve it. But, hey, I'm an outlier, obviously. I'm part of the, of a mere 14%. And 86% disagree with me. Um, Jimmy Carter doesn't. I, I don't know if I kept this one. Uh, Did I put this in the... I don't know that I, I uploaded this one. I had um, Jimmy Carter basically saying, hey, Chinese are nowhere near as bad as America. And that was from a former U.S. president. Ah, uh, Anyway, learning to hate China. What have I got here? Um, there's an article there that talks about the same thing. Um, this was from the John Menagerie blog. This is by William Briggs. He's a Dr. William Briggs, political economist affiliated with Deakin University. His special interest areas are in the fields of political theory and international political economy. And um, he says, Towards the end of 2019, an article titled Lessons in How to Hate China was published in Pearls and Irritations. Those lessons have been learned and learned well. Three years is a short time, but the collective memory is also short. China is now the accepted enemy, and the likelihood of war is spoken of more openly. A year before that article was published, so this is 2018, Joe, the annual Lowy survey stated that 52% of Australians had a degree of trust in our relationship with China. One year later, that dropped to 32%. There we go. So 52% in 2018, year later, 32%. Today, just 12% of Australians have any trust in Australia, uh, have any trust that China will behave responsibly in the world. According to the author of this article, and I agree with him, the figures are a tribute to the power of a media that can turn public opinion with supreme ease. Our media pick up issues and drop them, but the drive to demonise China has remained a constant theme. It begs the question, why? A couple of paragraphs later, he says, "'The fear-mongering serves a purpose. "'Australia's principal ally is the US, "'and it is not about to give up world dominance. "'Major powers never do. "'This is why the world is being pushed to the very brink. "'This is why China has been officially proclaimed "'to be an actual danger. "'This is why Australia is playing such a dangerous game "'by risking all for the sake of its ally, the United States,' It has nothing to do with ideology. If it were, then it might make sense. But no, it's all about control of the global economy, about market share, about capitalist power. There we go. Well, we found some figures. We didn't have to wait a week. So mm-hmm. there we go. Ah. Who in the chat room agrees with me? <laughs> the whole bogeyman China things are beat up. Who disagrees with me. Um. All right. Um, oh, just an article from Alan McLeod. It's actually a copy of a CNBC headline, which was, US needs to work with Europe to slow China's innovation rate, Raimondo says. That's the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo. So whoever said uh, capitalism breeds innovation, we've got the US saying we've got to halt China's innovation rate. All right, still on America, and haven't had anything on Joe Biden for a while, but this is an interesting one. Uh, Let me just find a clip on Joe Biden. Um, It's a quick one. And this is the leader of the free world, and he's got his uh, potentially finger on the nuclear trigger.
0: Here he goes. Let me start off with two words. Made in America. Made in America.
1: I counted three.
2: No, no, no. It was maiden, <laughs> as in a, a female, America.
0: Yes.
1: Another one. This is a fun one for you because it's been too serious. Oh, John Simmons says, I'm about 85% with you on China. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, Got John at least kind of on board there. You're doing well in the chat room. Lots of comments. Keep them coming. Um, got another one here, uh, sort of from the Only in America files. This one. I mean, who out there doesn't like a little bit of rapping? You like rap music, Joe?
2: <laughs>
1: no. What about Republican rap? How do you feel about Republican rap?
2: Probably about the same as I feel as normal rap.
1: Oh, I don't think so. If if, if you don't like rap, I don't think you're going to like Republican rap. See what you think.
0: Hey, Utah District 12, listen up right here. There's a new name on the ballot for the Senate this year. My name is Linda Paulson republican and awesome love god and family and the constitution i tried to get another conservative to run nobody could do it so i'm getting it done i'm pro-religious freedom pro-life pro-police the right to bear arms and the right to free speech i want less government Control and regulation want to stop and expose all political corruption where integrity, morality, accountability. Government programs should lead to self-sufficiency and support traditional family as the fundamental unit of society. But in schools, they're pushing for new beliefs. And just to clarify, as a female adult, I know what a woman is.
1: I don't know. For a right-wing nutbag, something cute about a little old lady. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it might have been better if she could keep time with the backing track.
1: Oh, it was a bit syncopathic, wasn't it? Like she's just slightly off, which was <laughs> good. Yeah. I'm going to mix up a bit of China and USA here in one hit. On the screen, there's a life expectancy at birth. And uh, China has now passed the United States in life expectancy. There you go. Chinese born today, seventy-seven point one. US born today. I was about to say 76. that's COVID, but
2: maybe not. It's
1: twenty nineteen, mm. isn't it? So, well, it's life expectancy. So, there we go. Um, it's that one, and. Uh, And from the only in America file, it's a fairly fat file, really, when you think about it.
2: Like most Americans.
1: (laughs) Yep. This is a headline from the Daily Mail. Man who donated his mother's body to an Arizona centre for Alzheimer's research discovered it was sold on to the US military for $6,000. Strapped to a chair and blowing up in a blast test—that's kind of an only in America type of thing. I would have thought.
2: It was critical to understand how Alzheimer's patients disintegrate. I don't know. For the next time they accidentally, so next time there's some collateral damage on an old folks' home, they'll know how far the dead bodies are scattered.
1: Hmm. Yeah, next time there's a, a rogue gunman runs through a retirement village, I'll know. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, ended up as really a fraud by an intermediary company. So because um, everything's privatised, of course, mm-hmm. uh, it involved the body being um, uh, taken over by this private company who then sent it on to the government. The government didn't know that the company did not have this permission. Um, So they took the body and and did some blast tests on it. Anyway, that's uh, only in America. Uh, And uh, let me see. Let's skip over. And the other part, just to finish off with only in America, uh, have you heard of Harper's Index before, Joe, until the show notes?
2: Harper's Mm. Index? No.
1: Hmm. First published in March 1984, Harper's Magazine Monthly Index is, in the words of editor Roger Hodge, a statistical poem. Sounds like an oxymoron to me. Statistical poem. Each month the index presents a single page of meticulously researched statistics and figures. And apparently these are, uh, there's, there's all sources for where they got these from. And according to the media bias factcheck.com, um, Harper's has a high degree of accuracy when it comes to fact being fact checked. So
2: I, I had a concern about some of them mm. that they were numbers quoted in isolation, mm. and that sometimes they're referring to percentages, sometimes they're referring to. Uh, factor. Mm-hmm. So they're not consistent, and therefore you have to be careful reading the numbers to actually be able to compare one with another.
1: Are you spoiling my fun, Joe, when it comes to poking at Americans? Is that what you're doing?
2: Well, it would be better if they were actually presented as a consistent set of values.
1: Mm. Okay. Take all of this with a grain of salt in that it is done to sort of shock people, I guess, and to arrange things. But anyway, if you get the show notes, you'll see it, and there are links to where the sources are for these things. So, um, so this is from the Harper's Index. This is the last item on the show. Um, this is for October 2022, so very current. Percentage change since 2019 in the portion of Americans who believe environmental laws are worth the cost, negative 23.
2: Now, that's since the Republicans got kicked out.
1: Right. So not worth the cost of a democratic government. (laughs) Really? Mm. Not worth the change. So environmental laws are not worth the cost. Um. Oh, actually, I might be reading that the wrong way. Percentage change in the portion of Americans who believe environmental laws are worth the cost. Okay, yeah, it's still a bad figure.
2: Yeah, yeah. so 23% less, but that's not... I don't think that's of 100% of American voters. I think Mm. that's possibly of 100% of people who believed it was good before. Mm. There's 23% less of those.
1: A portion of Americans who believe environmental oh, okay. laws are worth a Okay, portion of Americans. Cost. Yeah, okay. I think it's down. Yeah, so a big drop in people supporting environmental laws. No longer worth the cost. The percentage of U.S. voters who view climate change as the most important problem facing the country. One percent.
2: Yeah, I think partisanism is a bigger problem. Mm. Because without that, you can't do anything.
1: Without partisanship.
2: Oh, well, (laughs) without being able to work together.
1: Mm. Well. uh, Of US voters uh, under the age of 30 who think that the most important problem facing the country is climate change, it's only 3%. For example, that came from the Siena College Research Institute. That's the source. Uh, percentage by which American men are more likely than women to support nuclear power, 47. Interesting. Men much more pro-nuclear power than women.
2: Yeah, but again, so 1% of women and 1.5% of men. mm you, you, you have no base yeah, rate.
1: True. It could be. You're right. Yeah. Um, mm. Well, whatever the support is of nuclear power, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Men are more likely. Yes, substantially more likely. Well, one and a half times more likely. Mm. The percentage by which Trump voters are more likely than Biden voters to have Donated sperm.
2: Now, don't forget in America, donate means sell.
1: Yes, 50%. So
2: percentage by which poor people are more likely than rich people to have sold their sperm.
1: Mm. On the other hand, if you're buying sperm,
0: high probability
1: of a Republican sperm, Trump supporter.
2: It's kind of put you off, wouldn't it?
1: It's devalued American sperm, I think. Go for other countries, use sperm. Yeah. percentage of Americans who say they aren't afraid of anything, 16%. It's because they got their guns. Mm. See, these are fun, <laughs> even though they might be dubious. And don't <laughs> I,
2: I don't know that the numbers themselves are dubious. I just think that they're yeah. without context. Yeah.
1: I just looked at the chat room and John Simmons commented, surely only one blast test, Trevor. And I thought he was talking about the sperm, but no, he'd be talking about, um, yeah, about the topic. the, the grandma, the grandma. mother. That's, that's it, yeah. Um, percentage of Americans who could correctly identify Ukraine on a map in February, uh,
2: 34%. I'm surprised it's that
1: high. Mm. Factor by which this percentage has increased since 2014.
2: Two. I'd also be interested to see how many Australians could.
1: Mm. Minimum number of cigarette packs Philip, Morris's, Philip Morris has donated to the Ukrainian army, 500,000. Who said tobacco companies weren't benevolent? Yeah.
2: Yeah, interesting. I wonder how many in the Second World War were donated as opposed to sold because mm. they used to be part of the ration pack.
1: Mm. And a couple more left. Percentage of US adults who think video gaming should be taught in schools. Percentage of US adults who think video gaming should be taught in schools. 54. <laughs> Eek. Yeah. That's not an increase ga-
2: the video game intra- uh, um, industry. Mm. Programming video games. Mm. Um, surely that's a useful thing. Yep. Yeah. True.
1: Coding. Mm. Uh, Hashtag learn to code. mm. Percentage of Democrats that Republicans believe are atheist or agnostic, 36%. So Republicans think that 36% of Democrats are atheists or agnostic. The actual percentage is nine.
2: It's a scary number, isn't it? Mm.
1: Anyway, you rightly point out, Joe, that those are figures possibly structured and designed to shock and awe, not necessarily to present perhaps accurate reflection, but uh, Harper's Index. Google that and um, look up the links and see what the questions were behind all that.
2: Um, I was quite interested in the um, portion of pastors who've seriously considered quitting the ministry in the past year. Oh, okay. I've, I missed Two in five. Okay. 40%
1: hmm there okay all right Joe oh close enough to an hour and a half I think we're done in the chat room um you've been going well good on you in there and thanks for your comments uh not sure what we'll do next week the currency topic will be off for a couple of weeks because I'll be talking to my I'll be listening to Michael Hudson talking about currency I think it about the 20th So after that, I'll get on to currency. Um, So who knows what we'll do next week. Depends what happens in the world out there. In the meantime, enjoy yourselves. Um, Think about becoming a patron and tell your friends and um, talk to you next week. Bye for now.
0: And it's a good night from him. The best, like all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity.